of that church. And of course, let's keep in mind, really, this uh, Episcopal Methodist Church was just an arm of the Church of England. Uh, John Wesley had uh, sent some men to the uh, United States over a period of several years. And ultimately, uh, a man by the name of Coke, a man by the name of Asbury, had united and met over in the States. And <clears throat> they established this Methodist Episcopal organization. And so they had a lot of the same governmental type uh, hierarchies involved in it. And so over time, James O'Kelly began to notice that that wasn't what he was reading in the Bible. And so... Uh, uh, we ended the last time talking about uh, James O'Kelly and the, the conference of uh, 1779 and uh, some things that came up during that conference, particularly about uh, sprinkling or immersion for baptism. Uh, they talked about the form of government that Asbury and Coke was pushing and so uh, five years later, from that time in 1779, by the time they had what is known as the Christmas uh, Conference where the, uh, all the uh, organ, uh, members of the, uh, the hierarchy of the Episcopal Methodist Church came together, uh, some problems had erupted. And, uh, but during that time, O'Kelly and 12 other men were ordained as elders. And so, uh, uh, they were done, uh, that was done by Thomas Coke. And so when O'Kelly became an elder in this organization, he kind of began to marshal the, the forces together. He was on a, uh, on a path to, uh, rebuke and to withstand Asbury and uh, the way that Asbury went about things. Asbury was tyrannical, and he wanted to uh, control things in much the same way that the, the Catholic Church did and that the Church of England did. And so what we see here is Asbury, or rather O'Kelly, trying to change things. And of course, up to this time, the only people who... Uh, uh, the only person who was allowed to, quote, ordain a preacher or minister was Asbury. You couldn't be a minister or preacher in this Methodist Episcopal Church unless Asbury, who carried the title with him superintendent over that whole organization in the United States, unless he said you could be one. So what would usually happen is when a person was ordained by Asbury to be a preacher, he was a circuit preacher. And we remember back years ago, we had circuit preachers in the, in the United States. And what they did, they didn't just simply preach for one congregation. They had a circuit and they went to various congregations. And so Asbury ordained you to be a, a circuit preacher and you just took the circuit that he gave you. You had no input on... <clears throat> where you wanted to be. So you may have to load up and head out and take care of a circuit uh, many, many miles away and take your family. And so in 1790, O'Kelly wrote a letter to Asbury warning him the opposition is coming unless you drop this idea of uh, sending preachers wherever you want. And he said, you're abusing your Episcopal powers. What does that sound like? 
<clears throat> that sounds like exactly what had been happening for hundred, you know, for three hundred years. And so, uh, of course, Asbury had the same response that the Catholics had, that the Church of England had. He had no intention of changing course. He was in control, and he meant to maintain that control. Now, <clears throat> to me, that's a little ironic, and I guess irony uh, is missed by a lot of folks. Uh, but you have someone who claims to be a member of God's church, and he's operating this way. He has unilateral control. There is no at no place in the Scripture, the New Testament, do we ever see where, where someone had unilateral control. Let's go all the way back to Pentecost. How many apostles were there? Twelve, right? Twelve apostles who held the keys to the kingdom of God. Not one man. Now we can go back to uh, Matthew chapter 16 and... And Christ made that statement to Peter, but he was the one to whom he was talking. Peter just happened to answer the question he asked the twelve. Who do men say I am? And so Peter spoke for the group. And when Jesus responded to Peter, he responded to the group. Each one of those men held the keys to the kingdom of God because within them they had the completed gospel. just simply hadn't been written down yet. So at no point in the history of the church... Has there ever been unilateral control on earth? Christ obviously is the one head. He's the king. He has unilateral control, but not among the people. There's always been a plurality of leaders. Why? Well, because now you've got people like the Pope. You've got people like Asbury. You've got people like John Wesley who said, there's no doubt providentially God wants me to send people and oversee the... uh, uh, missionary efforts to the colonies. So anyway, uh, in, a, in addition to this letter that O'Kelly had written to Asbury, a couple of years later in 1792, he introduced a motion in one of the conferences that a preacher can appeal the circuit that uh, if he didn't like that position. And of course, that was an intended blow to Asbury, who, once that was uh, brought up, the motion was made at this conference, he got up and retired, left the conference, retired from the conference. He left Coke in charge. He wasn't even going to listen to it. And so, uh, you know, that was a problem. And so there was a debate that followed that. They debated the rights of the preacher uh, to appeal to the conference. And, uh, you know, you ought to be able to appeal to the conference instead of just listening to Asbury, who's the super... And all this is nonsense, isn't it? All of it's nonsense, but it's like a snowball. You begin to manufacture something that's apart from what the Bible intends, and then you've got a huge mess on your hands. And so, uh, finally, during the debate, O'Kelly lost. The conference decided, no, that's not what we're going to do. So it was at that point that O'Kelly said, all right, I'm out of here. He uh, served notice that they were done with the conference. And so they formed their own group. They formed their own group. Following that conference, four prominent men stood with O'Kelly. But eventually, over time, it came down to O'Kelly and a man by the name of Rice Haggard, who was his uh, support in that. The other three men 
some of them went to secular work. Some of them uh, uh, just simply left that movement. But it, it boiled down to O'Kelly and this man by the name of uh, Rice Haggard. Now, in addition to his influence on O'Kelly, uh, Rice Haggard, who was very instrumental in people taking the name Christian. Okay? We're going to take the name Christian. We're not going to take a secular name. He not only influenced O'Kelly, he influenced another person we're going to talk about next. When we get through with O'Kelly here, a man by the name of Barton Stone. And Barton Stone was influenced to use this name Christian. So you see, (coughs) excuse me, these men who are starting this movement, it's just a little at a time. And that's kind of the way it has to be done, right? Do we, uh, when we look through the efforts of Paul, did Paul go into a, a city and start a riot and say, we're going to change everything from the top down right now and it's going to... No, he did it a little bit at a time, right? It, they were difficult, hard sayings, but as the gospel is preached and you have this desire to go back to the New Testament, well, little by little... Things happened and things began to change. So this man, Rice Haggard, influenced O'Kelly. Let's go back to the name Christian. He also influenced Barton Stone. Hey, let's go back to the name Christian. And we're going to notice that influence when we get over to Barton Stone, some of the things that he did. It's very important. Now, did O'Kelly go far enough? Did Rice Haggard go far enough? No. But they are moving in the correct direction. Any comments? Questions? Well, sure. A person can never do the job and do it properly without having issues. It's got to be a plurality. Just, I mean, that's, that's just the checks and balances on Sure it is. And, you know, that's why we have uh, set forth in the Scripture these qualifying characteristics for elders, right? It takes a special person to be able to uh, be a leader in the Lord's church and follow the things that God has asked. Let me give you an example. How many of you are familiar with the show that used to be on TV, Duck Dynasty? You're familiar with the Robertsons over in West Monroe, Louisiana? Uh, members of the Lord's Church? Yeah, I don't know about that. Okay, in fact, and I appreciate them doing this, they finally just took the Lord's name off the name of their church. It's just the whatever church. You know, they try to still have the same things. They have uh, an eldership. They have some preachers. But you know what? They've got women in leadership positions. They uh, have praise teams. They get up and dance on the stage while they're singing gospel songs and all kinds of... It's just... It, it, it's, it's sickening. And I'm glad that they never mentioned what organization they, were, they claimed to be a part of because, look, that's not the Lord's church. Of course, it is a massive church. It's huge. But that's kind of the way it goes, you know. That's about the only way you can have a church of a thousand people if you're keeping everybody happy. And if you're keeping everybody happy, 
you really have relaxed all of the requirements that God has set forth. At any rate, uh, you know, uh, these men were doing some things that needed to happen. And so instead of having one person in line, and that's kind of what happened with this church down in West Monroe. Who was the, who was the most famous of the elders down there? Phil Robertson. So if Phil wanted it, that's how it went. Okay? Look, that's not how it's supposed to be. You have a plurality of leaders who each one in and of themselves stand on the scripture to do that which is right, and they watch each other. Because what's the role of the eldership? What's the role of any leadership if you don't have elders? Is to watch after the souls of the members. And who's the member? Everybody. That includes the leadership, right? Uh, in, uh, by themselves and apart from the eldership, what kind of authority does one single elder have? None that I can tell. Unless I'm wrong on that, we need to do a little, little greater study into the Scripture, but the leadership is within that eldership, right? Those men who make up that eldership, and each individual elder is in subjection to the eldership. And so they not only watch over our souls, they watch over their own souls. And so <clears throat> that was an issue that was coming up with Asbury, the leader, the superintendent of the Episcopal Methodist Church, and he was calling all the shots, and the shots he was calling did not align themselves with what the Bible said. <clears throat> now this man, Rice Haggard, he went on in 1804, a few years later, to publish a treatise, and the title of that treatise is uh, On the Sacred Import of the Christian Name. You know, we don't often think a lot about that, do we? we you know, are, are you a Christian? Yeah, we're a Christian. But do we really consider what that means? <coughs> you know, we're Christians. We're not any. We're not anything else. Have you ever heard someone kind of refer to the Lord's Church? And I don't think they intend this. But in, in, in a sense, when they're talking about it, they almost make it into a denomination. I'm Church of Christ. It's like it's a denomination. Yeah, I'm a member of the Lord's Church. I'm a member of the Church of Christ because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And, and we, we should never be ashamed to say I'm a member of the Lord's Church. I'm a member of the Church of Christ. But we need to understand what we mean when we say that. That means we're Christians. And a Christian is a member of the Church of Christ, the Lord's Church. The Lord's Church is made up of members who are Christians. It's one and the same. You can't separate one from the other, right? And so uh, these men were moving on, moving along. And uh, <clears throat> so after having lost their battle at this conference and saying, okay, we're through with the conference, uh Later on, 1792, O'Kelly and his followers met in a place in Charlotte's County, Virginia, and they sent petitions out to all the other Methodists in the area asking for unity. And, uh, uh, of course, they stipulated certain amendments, but all those Methodists turned them down. So the following year in 1793, at Piney Grove in Chesterfield County, Virginia, the... Uh, the group petitioned Asbury to meet them in conference to examine the government of the Methodist Episcopal Church 
and the and uh, uh, line it up next to the scriptures. Guess what Asbury said? Not interested. Not going to do it. Y'all get together, have your meetings, do whatever you want to. I'm good. We're going to keep rocking right along in this uh, uh, Methodist Episcopal Church, and you all do what you want to do. So nothing was going to change. So what do you have to do when nothing will change? You have to get out, right? You don't load up, get out, first sign of trouble. But if you're a member of a church that's the Lord's church and things begin to get get off one way or the other, you, you've got to stand up and you've got to, you got to fight against that. You have to try to bring that back in alignment. But when it gets to the point where things are going to be that way and there's not a thing you can do, I think I think it's necessary to leave. You can't maintain that fellowship with that group, can you? Don't you have to go? If they've determined, hey, we're getting away. We're not we don't care. We're going to do what we want to do. I think it's time to go. I think we're obligated to do that. And so, obviously, old Kelly here is not leaving the Lord's church, but he's in a movement trying to find out and to work his way out of darkness. And so he sees what's going on back here in the Episcopal Methodist Church, and he says, okay, nothing's changing. We've got to go. And so that's what happened. And uh, they had another conference. Do you see, though, it's hard to get rid of what you've been entrenched in? They had an issue with the conference. They had an issue with the supreme leader of the conference. So what do they do? Hey, let's have a conference and see if we can fix this problem. It's hard to get out of that mindset, isn't it? So they had one. They all got together in 1793 and they decided to uh, separate themselves and they changed their name. Now remember, Rice Haggard, what, what did he push for? We're called Christians. We're called Christians. Well, they decided they were going to separate and they took the name Republican Methodists. Okay? And we look back on that and it's a little frustrating, isn't it? <clears throat> we say, I can't believe you're doing this. But we've got hundreds of years of history that we also can look back on and say, James O'Kelly, what's the deal here? Why in the world could you not see what Barton Stone saw? Why could you not see what Alexander Campbell saw? Why could you not see what Raccoon John Smith saw? Or McGarvey? Or Pendleton? Or all those other men. Why can you? Well, because he's up here in the darkness. He's one of the first, James O'Kelly. You know, he was an amazing individual. Did he die a Christian? You know, we'll leave that in God's hands. I know that that he uh, supported sprinkling as a form of baptism, and that's what he held to, and he died that way. But what was he doing? He was pushing people toward and helping to lead people toward let's go back to the New Testament. But in the process of doing that, they came up with a new group, not what the New Testament called, but now the Republican Methodists. Now they stated theirs was to be a republic. That sounds great. If you're a nation, a secular nation built on ideals and principles, that we're going to treat each other right and we're going to have a form of government that is not uh, tyrannical. But see, they're still very close to that, right? It's not been too many years, 20 years maybe. And so they say, okay, we want to be a republic religiously. 
And so they had some things that they said uh, there's going to be no slavery. Uh, it's going to be a glorious church. And it's going to be from uh, free from the evils of misgovernment. Now those are high ideals and I think we would agree with those. But we're not going to agree that we need to form an organization of our own and import those ideals into it. Those ideals already existed, didn't they? Read the book of Philemon. Paul says, there's no slavery. There's no slavery. That's not what God wants. We read the book of Ephesians. It is a glorious church. We read the books of First uh, Timothy and Titus, and we understand the proper government that God has ordained, and we don't have to have a Republican Methodist. Okay? But, again... Let's not be too hard on James O'Kelly because he didn't have any help in this. I don't know any of us in this building right here or the last couple of generations who didn't have some help in learning their way through the Scripture. I don't know of anyone personally who came out of complete darkness with no help whatsoever. James O'Kelly was one of those men. Rice Haggard was one of those men. Martin Stone. Uh... You know, the Campbells, they were men who were coming out of darkness on their own. But, anyway, the, uh, any comments, questions? Brother Joe. Sure, that, that's Asbury. You know, I think this one across the road used to be the Cokesbury. Part of the Cokesbury. Yeah, but Cokesbury would be, of course, Coke and Asbury. And then you see the Asbury. It, yeah, it's all a splinter sect of, of this, the Episcopal Methodist Church. That was the, the father organization or the mother organization. And so from that, you split off and there are just innumerable different kinds of Methodist churches. I'm talking from way out here in left field to way out here in right field. They go the gamut from extreme conservatism to extreme liberalism. And it just runs the gamut. Maybe more so than any other denomination I can think of that, that has such a varying degree of differences within that umbrella name, the Methodist Church. And so it, it is a part of that. And so they decided they were going to break off. And this was the first splinter group, the Republican Methodists, okay? One of many to come. And so a couple years, or the next year after 1793, they met again in Virginia. And a committee of seven had been, <laughs> had been appointed to devise a plan for church government. Really? Been doing this for 300 years and more and we're not yet catching on that that doesn't work very well? But to their credit, they finally to uh, decided that they were going to lay aside every manuscript that had ever been written on the creeds and the, the councils and those things. And you know what they decided they'd do? Let's go back to the Bible. And so that's what makes James O'Kelly so important in the history of the Restoration Movement because he was one of the first, maybe the first, 
who said, listen, let's go back to the Bible. Of course, we had this influence of Rice Haggard. And uh, uh, there was this man by the name of Hafferty who was a part, H-A-F-F-E-R-T-Y, part of this movement. He was from North Carolina. He stood up in this conference that they were having and he said, hey, let's take the Bible itself as our only creed. And of course, then from uh, those two motions where uh, Kelly and, and part of them said, okay, hey, let's do away with the other creeds. Let's take the Bible. And this fellow stands up by the name of Haverty and he said, let's not only take the Bible, let's take the Bible alone. They passed the motion because they're still in this conference mindset. And uh, they devised what came what came to be known as the five cardinal principles of the Christian church. Okay? Let's, let's read these and let's think about them. Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. Would we agree with that? Absolutely. The name Christian to the exclusion of all party and sectarian names. Okay, we agree with that too. The Holy Bible or the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, our only creed and sufficient rule of faith and practice. I think we'd go along with that. Christian character or vital piety, the only test of church fellowship and membership. What about that one? Now we got a problem, don't we? Let's listen to that again. Christian character or vital piety, the only test of church fellowship and membership. Do, do we know members of a denomination who are high, morally upstanding, pious individuals who would never do anything they thought would uh, contradict anything God has demanded of us? Is that good enough for church membership? Way off, isn't it? We could go back to the Episcopal Methodist Church that they were fleeing from, and I guarantee you we could find some people at that time who fit that category. So that's the issue. But they went on to number five, and it says, the right of private judgment and the liberty of conscience and the privilege and duty of all. And I think we agree with that. It is my right to read the Bible and to discern for myself what the Bible intends, but to do it properly. Rightly dividing the word of truth. And so I think we'd go along with that. So we see they, they're moving in the right direction, aren't they? But they're still got a lot of work to do. And so I think the significance of O'Kelly is that direction in which he was helping guide these folks. Any comments? <clears throat> No, no, I didn't say that. I think that we're Christians. That's a, that's interchangeable. No, I, I said some people speak of the church in the sense of it's like a denomination, like any other denomination. You see, notice that phraseology. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Other denominations. I don't think they intend what that sounds like, but that's what they say. What do other people hear? There's not a thing wrong with saying I'm a member of the church of Christ. But we have to understand what that means. 
That means you're a Christian. That doesn't mean you're, you know, a member of some organization. Because you know what? There are people in the in the world, and there are people in the Lord's church who believe there are Christians in every church. Yeah. So we have to understand how the two are linked together. We have to understand if you're going to be a Christian, you are a member of the church of Christ because that's the church he died for. Okay? Not in the denominational sense or the institutional sense. That's the church. That's the one true church. You're a Christian, you're a member of that. If you're a member of that, you're a Christian. So you're right, you're correct. So is that clear? I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I meant by that. Where'd you? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, it's just like Miss Jane said. If we go across the road and we ask them if they're Christians, what are they going to say? Absolutely, absolutely. So we have to understand that. So what we what we need to understand is the connection of being a Christian to the Lord's church. There are no Christians outside of the Lord's church, period. You have to be a member of that New Testament church we read about. That's why these men and those like them were trying to usher back. And they may not have known it, thought about it in the front of their minds. Okay, we got to drop all these secular names and we got to go back to the church. Because they weren't doing that, were they? They were just making up different secular names. But their their intention was to go back to the church, and so that was that is the significance of this man, James O'Kelly. He kind of got that started. People like him and Rice Haggard to to encourage people. <clears throat> let's go back to the church. Let's have let's have Christ as the only head. Let's call ourselves Christians. And when they said that, they didn't mean you know, they were saying, don't, let's not call ourselves Episcopal Methodists. Let's not call ourselves, uh, you know, but, but at the same time, they were still missing the connection, weren't they? Because they were Republican Methodists. They, their, their theology was correct in that they want to take the name Christian, but they weren't adhering to their own theology is the issue. But again, brethren, they were coming out of darkness on their own and, and they, they had a tough task ahead of them. In order to be able to uh, to get that uh, get that done, yeah, the comments, good comments. Well, while all this is happening in uh, that part of the world at this time, the leaven of restoration was working within these Methodists in Virginia, in North Carolina, and in places like that. It was also working among the Baptists up in Vermont and New England. So what we're seeing is a simultaneous effort going on among unconnected groups. Okay? O'Kelly didn't know what was happening up in Vermont necessarily or uh, New Hampshire. But there was a man by the name of Elias Smith who was leading that effort. Now, the name Elias Smith is always joined with Abner Jones. They started this movement and pushed this movement ahead up in the New England states and ultimately 
they established, and more so Jones really, established what was called the free Christian church because they were breaking away from the Baptists at the same time that O'Kelly was trying to break away from uh, the uh, Methodists. Now, Eli Smith from Lyme, Connecticut, okay? His father... His father was Stephen Smith. His mother was Irene Ransom. And uh, his mother was his father's second wife, which was common. You know, so, uh, they didn't have a lot of the things we have today. You get sick. A lot of uh, parents died. A lot of uh, being married to another person as a widow or a widower. And one of the other things was he was about 13 years older than her, which was also very common at the time. Uh she was 19 when Elias was born, so that would make him, what, 32 when Elias was born. <clears throat> and so uh, Elias wrote down in his journals regarding his parents, he said, although my parents were never rich, they were industrious and maintained by their righteous lives the honorable character of Christians. Now, the father was a Baptist until just one year before his death, when a, a church was formed at Woodstock, Vermont, which was called by the ancient name recorded in Acts eleven twenty six, Christians. So he made the effort to become a Christian, okay? Uh, now, Smith grew up during the Revolutionary War. He had all that baggage carrying with him, things of times of uncertainty. He didn't really uh, know what was going on at the age of six, <clears throat> At the age of 11, they moved about 30 miles away. Uh, and that is at that point where he got his last, quote, schooling. At the age of 11. So uh, by the time he was finished with his schooling, he could read the Bible some, and he could write some. And so he became very interested in religion. And as he began to read this Bible some, he came to the conclusion... He became uh, very concerned about baptism. Who could be baptized? What was the proper mode? He came to the realization that baptism was for believers only. Now, what had been going on in the past? We're baptizing babies, right? Infant baptism. And so he came to this understanding, well, baptism is immersion. That's what baptism is. And it's not really even correct to say what form of baptism. Baptism is immersion, period. That's what the word means, immersion. And so he decided he needed to be immersed, so he wanted to be immersed. And so as he got older and he grew, uh, he met a man by the name of William Grow. He was a Baptist preacher, and he went to this Revival meeting that William Grow was putting on in Connecticut and he wanted to be baptized so they took him down to the Queechy River and he baptized him. Now, according to William Grow, and I think this is something very common happening today, Eli Smith was a Christian. But guess what he wasn't? A Baptist. He had to do some extra things to be a Baptist. And so... uh uh those things was those things were number one. He had to give a reason for the for his hope in Christ. Okay, why do you have hope in Christ? Well, I think we all need to be able to give a reason for our hope. 
Second, he must be baptized. Now, when he was baptized by this Baptist preacher, he was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That was his purpose for going to that man because he wanted to be baptized according to what the Bible said. Now, again, we talked about this the other day. Did it matter that that man was a Baptist preacher? Not at all. Who's doing it doesn't make any difference. It's all about who's getting it done to them. Okay? And so, he had to be baptized, and he was. Third, he had to give his consent to uh, the articles of faith and the church covenant that ruled over that Baptist church. Now, you know what number four was? They had to vote on him. They had to vote on him. You don't read about that in the New Testament. Every time I read about something like that, I'm just reminded of Howard Sprague on Andy Griffith. He tried to join the Elks Lodge, and his mother lied to Goober, and they voted on him, and Goober rolled to black marble. So he couldn't come into the Elks Lodge. You know, and, and thank God, the church is not like the Elks Lodge, is it? It's not a country club. We don't vote on who can come in and be members. God set those restrictions and those things necessary. And so... Um, We'll end on this. Uh, he did all of those things. Okay? Soon he became a member of the Second Baptist Church in Woodstock, Connecticut. But he was not so sure about those articles of faith. Now listen to what he wrote. Later he said, The articles of faith to which I then ascended contained what the Baptists call particular election. Or that Christ died for the elect and that number should be saved. These articles I did not understand, for they had never been read to me before. Now, what was one of his issues? Wasn't a real good reader, okay, because he didn't have much of an education. And being read but once, it was impossible for me to remember uh, much of them. I assented to them because the minister of the church thought they were true. Since that time, the minister and the members have rejected that abominable doctrine of partiality and now stand in close or stand in gospel liberty. So that doctrine of partiality of the elect was that Calvinistic doctrine, and he fought against Calvinism. And ultimately, though, Calvinism uh, is what was his undoing because he went so far to get away from Calvinism that he went all the way into Universalism, and that's the way he died. But we'll talk a little bit about that next time. Any comments? All right, thank you so much.